If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, as we continue our, our preaching series through this uh, great book of Romans, we come this morning to Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. And next week we'll look at verses 35 to 39. This is uh, those verses 31 to 39 together make up the concluding section of Romans chapter 8. So we'll, look, we'll do it in, in two parts, 31 to 34 this morning, 35 to 39 next week. If you would please join me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word in prayer this morning. Let's bow together. Lord God, we do praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you, Lord, for your faithful provision in the life of the church and in elders and deacons. We praise you for your faithfulness in revealing yourself to us through your word. And I pray now, O oh Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, to the chapter 8, with your spirit and give a deep assurance of the security of our salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray, O oh Lord, that you do work in us by the power of your Spirit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 8, 31 to 34. So Paul, of course, has been talking, uh, as in the last several weeks, we've been looking at the overarching theme of suffering and glory, uh, and how everything is headed towards this uh, glorification, the, the, uh, all of creation uh, joining in glory, and we as, hum as believers uh, looking forward to our glorification, the glorification of our bodies. And, and uh, then uh, last week we looked at... Uh, well, the week before, how the Spirit helps us in our weakness, intercedes for us, and then last week, this golden chain of God's sovereign grace in our salvation. And that brings us then to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You may be seated. <clears throat> This uh, concluding section of Romans uh, 8 is arguably the, the greatest section in the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. One commentator has said it is the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation. It is, he says, the Mount Everest of the Bible, the, the highest peak in the highest Himalayan range of Scripture. And one of the reasons why these verses are so dearly loved is that they, they speak to our deepest need as Christians. 
We, we need assurance of our standing with God. We, we need to know that our salvation and our eternal destiny is indeed secure. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and we need to know what will come of us on that day. And we find in these verses the assurance we crave that if we have responded in true faith to Christ, then our salvation is secure in him. We find in these verses what some have called the Christian's triumph song. In Christ, we are utterly and completely and irrevocably secure. So Paul assures us of our security in Christ by asking in this concluding section five questions that, that, have, uh, that reveal five profound spiritual truths. And so we're going to look at the first four this morning in verses 31 to 34. The last question is in verses 35 to 39. So this morning, four questions that reveal four profound spiritual truths, all of which speak to our, the, uh, give us a deep assurance of our security in Christ in our salvation. So the first question that assures us of our security is, is who can be against us? And the implied answer, of course, is that no one can be against us. Now, Paul is not saying that those who are in Christ will not have any opponents. Uh, he knows very well that Christians uh, will have to contend with, with enemies and with opposition. In fact, Paul himself has testified throughout many of his letters about those who were against him in many ways. He tells how he was flogged and imprisoned and how he was uh, beaten with rods and pelted with stones and how he was in danger from bandits and in danger from Jews and in danger from Gentiles and in danger from false believers and on and on the list of his opponents goes. He bore in his own body the scars of opposition. So Paul is not saying that we won't ever have any opponents. No, what, what Paul is saying is that, is that nothing of eternal harm can come to believers. That, that no enemy can ultimately prevail over us. And the reason is because of the profound spiritual truth that is attached to this question. And that is that God is for us. Paul says it this way, if God is for us, which really in the Greek means since or because, since God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, God is our champion. God is on our side. And it's kind of like playing a game of pickup basketball with, with Giannis on, on your team. Or if you prefer the Marvel universe, it's like going into battle with the Incredible Hulk at your side. But even, even those are, are just pale reflections of what Paul says here, that if God is for us, then no one can prevail over us. The psalmist understood this, didn't he? He said, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. And the prophet Isaiah understood this as well. He spoke words of defiant triumph in the face of those who were opposed to God's people. And he said, he said, raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. King David understood this as well. 
God saved him from the hand of Saul, and he cried out in praise, saying this, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge. I called to the Lord, who was worthy of praise, and have been saved from my enemies. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. In other words, there is nothing that can stand in my way. With, with God on my side, there is nothing that can stop me. Because God is for us, no one can be against us. No one can prevail over us. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. No one can, can break that golden chain of election. No one can derail God's plan for our salvation. All the powers of hell may join together against us, but they will never win because God is on our side. That's what Paul is saying in this first question. Uh, James Boyce said that Paul is, is challenging us to put, to put all of the enemies that we can think of, all of the enemies, whether demonic, whether in heaven or on earth or in hell, all the enemies that we can think of and put them on one side of a, of a balance scale. And all together, he says, they are like just a little stack of peanuts. And then he says, then he throws an anvil onto the other side of the balance and that side comes crashing down, sending all of the peanuts scattered to the ground. Nothing can defeat us with the almighty God of the universe on our side. Or maybe you can think of it this way, since it's almost football season, it's just around the corner. And so it's late December, and the Vikings are playing the Packers for a spot in the playoffs because the NFC North is weak. And so, yeah, that's wide open. We get to December, late December, Vikings playing the Packers at Lambeau Field for a spot in the playoffs. The Vikings are winning 52 to 3. <laughs> this is my illustration. I will say it how I want. <laughs> 52 to 3 plus without Aaron Rodgers, that's pretty, I think that's a fairly reasonable guess. So Vikings are winning 52 to 3 with a minute 35 left in the fourth quarter. Right? Okay. The, in, in that time that's remaining, the Packers might win some battles. They might get a few stops here and there. They might, they might uh, make some good tackles. They might uh, sack Kirk Cousins once or twice. They might even make an interception and put some more points on the board. But everybody in that stadium and everybody watching at home knows that the game is effectively over. It is physically impossible for the Packers to come back from that kind of of major lead. The Packers cannot do any lasting damage. The outcome of the game is totally and completely and irreversibly secured. That is the, the kind of assurance that we have in our salvation, that, that no opponent can overturn the outcome that has been secured for us. If God is for us, then it makes no difference who is against us because our victory is secured. If, if God is for us, then no one can prevail over us. That's the first question and its profound spiritual truth. The second question that assures us of our security is, well, how will God not also graciously give us all things? And, and when Paul says that God will, because again, the implied answer that is God, that God will graciously give us all things. And when Paul says that God will give us all things, we need to be clear what he means by all things. As we've seen before, sometimes when Paul says all things, he means all things. Sometimes he means something a little bit different than, than 
absolutely all things. And so Paul does not mean here that God will give us all the things that we want, all the things that, that, that our sort of self-consumed hearts can desire. He will bless us with all kind, all the, the health and the wealth and the prosperity that we could ever imagine. That's not what Paul is saying. There's no hint here of anything in prosperity gospel. I think that what Paul, there, there's some discussion and debate as to what Paul means by all things, and, and those are fun debates to have. I, I think that what Paul is saying in this context is that God will give us all of the things that are tied to our salvation in Christ. I think that's the best interpretation of what Paul means by all things in this context. All the things that are tied to our salvation in Christ. In other words, all of the spiritual blessings that, that Paul has identified in the previous chapters of Romans. Things like peace with God and, and the hope of glory and, and freedom from the tyrannical rule of sin and freedom from the condemning grip of the law and the, the ability and the power through the Holy Spirit to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in our sanctification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the assurance of, of our identity as co-heirs with Christ and the promise of everlasting life with glorified bodies on a glorified earth. These are amazing things. Amazing riches of spiritual blessings in Christ. And, and Paul says, how can, how can we know that God will give us these things? How can we know that he will follow through with these great promises? And the answer is found in the profound spiritual truth that is connected to this question. The answer is that God gave us his son. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he did that, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You see, God has already given us the greatest thing. He has given us the most supremely valuable gift. And he who gave his own son will then most certainly give us all the lesser things that are tied to our salvation. You know, think of it this way. If you suppose that you go out and you prepare an elaborate feast for your family, maybe for your, your neighbors, your friends, this, this big, giant, elaborate feast, you, go, you get the, the, these great gourmet foods, the finest of wines and all the, the fancy stuff, and you, you put all this stuff together for this great, amazing feast. If you do that, you are not going to withhold napkins to go along with the feast. Or think of it this way. If you write a check for $100,000 to send to your charity, you're not going to withhold the postage stamp to mail it. And God, who has given his son, will not withhold any of the lesser gifts. The language that Paul uses here alludes, if you, if you picked up on that, I don't know, but alludes to the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham, if you remember the story, Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his son. It was a test of his faith, a test of, you know, is, is God supreme in his heart or has his, his love for his son trumped his love and his devotion to God? And so there's this test, and, and God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. And when Abraham acted in obedience to God and demonstrated his willingness to do that, to sacrifice his son Isaac, God said to him at the end of that Story, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely 
bless you. It's the same language that Paul uses here in Romans 8. Paul says that God did not withhold his only son, but gave him up for us all. The difference, of course, between Abraham and God is that God endured what Abraham didn't have to endure. Abraham's son was spared, but God gave his son over to death on a cross. We can know that God will give us all things tied to our salvation because he has already given us the greatest gift. In giving his son, he, he gave everything. The cross is the guarantee of the unfailing and limitless generosity of God. You think uh, it might help to think of it this way. And again, as with all illustrations, I'm sure you could pick this apart and find some way that it's flawed. Please don't, don't do that. It's just an illustration. So suppose a young man falls in love with a young woman and he says that they will be married one day and they'll have a home together and they'll build a life together and they'll start a family together and they'll grow old together. And it sounds wonderful and amazing. And she says, well, how, how can I know that you will, that you will do these things? How, how can I know that you will give me these things that you have said? What, what guarantee can you give? Now, if he is only willing to sit there you know, at a restaurant or something and takes a little, a little napkin and a, and a pencil and writes on it, this is what I will do, and says, here, here's my guarantee, this little, this little napkin with some scrawled out promises with pencil, on, on, and I'll, I'll give it to you. Here's, here's what I'm giving to, to guarantee that I will give you these things. That doesn't really mean anything because it's just pencil and paper. It's not going to instill a whole lot of assurance in her I don't think anyway, unless I don't know women that well, which I guess I don't. But, but what if instead he empties his savings account to buy her a diamond ring? Well, then her assurance is, I would think, much more secure because what he has given her is so much more valuable than, than pencil and paper. And of course, you get the idea. You see, and again, it's not to say that it's somebody who has only, if, you've, if you're here and you proposed to your wife with, a, with pencil on a napkin, I'm not saying that you did anything wrong, okay? <laughs> I'm sure you have a very, very happy and fulfilled and, and lasting marriage. The idea is, you see, you see the point, the more costly the thing that you give, the greater the assurance of the one to whom you give it. God has given us the most supremely valuable gift of all. He has given us the one thing that he has treasured above all. He has given us his only beloved son. And the costliness is so infinitely costly that our assurance is untouchably secure. For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will most assuredly give us all of the lesser things tied to our salvation. The third question that assures us of our security is who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now, with this question, and really the next one as well, Paul invites us to imagine a courtroom scene, and God's chosen people are on trial. And Paul says, who will bring, so, so here's my chosen people, here are God's chosen people gathered in the courtroom, who will bring any charge against them? And of course, there are many who would bring charges against us. The, the devil himself accuses us. In fact, in Hebrew, the, the name Satan means accuser. We're, we're given a glimpse of Satan as our accuser in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. 
John has a vision of, of Satan as a great dragon who's thrown down from heaven. And this is what he says. He says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, Satan, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. Satan is our accuser. He knows the guilt of our offenses. He points out our sinful thoughts and actions. I think we see the same idea in another vision from the prophet Zechariah. An angel appears to Zechariah and gives him visions to, re to reveal the, the truths about the people of God. And in one of his visions, Zechariah sees a high priest named Joshua. And he says, Then the angel showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That's what Satan does. Here's a servant of the Lord standing next to and, and, and Satan is right there accusing him. He, he can't be your servant. Look, at, look he's done this, he's done that. He's, his heart is corrupt in this way and in that way. Accusing, accusing, accusing. So who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Well, we see throughout Scripture that Satan will, for one. He is our accuser and our adversary. But that brings us to the profound spiritual truth that's attached to Paul's question here in Romans 8. And that spiritual truth is that no one can effectively bring any charge against God's chosen people because it is God who justifies Again, Paul puts it this way. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The implied answer is nobody. And here's the reason why it is God who justifies. And so if we are on trial in a courtroom and Satan is there to bring his charges against us, not a single one of those charges will stand because God himself is the judge. He presides over the supreme court of the universe. And he has justified his chosen people through the blood of his son. You know, imagine going, you get, you get pulled over, and you get a, a ticket or something like that, and you, you, you appeal it, and, and, uh, and be beforehand, I'm thinking of this on the fly, so this illustration just might not work, I don't know. <laughs> but So you, you, you're, you're guilty, you, you, you pull over by cop, you speeding ticket, you go to the court, but you've worked out ahead of time. You've, you've, uh, this, this, the person has paid your dues and has canceled the debt, canceled the charges, and everything's worked out. You get to the courtroom, you're standing on trial, and the judge just happens to be the one with whom you worked all the things out before who has graciously released and canceled your charge. The person comes and says, hey, this person is guilty. This person, uh, you know, I caught him doing this, and this person is guilty, condemned, accused. And the judge says, well, yeah, all that's true, but I, we, I've dealt with this long. I already dealt with this, and he is, he's justified in my sight because I've already canceled the charge. That's kind of the sense, a little bit the sense that, that Paul is getting at here in Romans 8. We see, I think, a foreshadowing of this justification in the remainder of Zechariah's vision. 
he says, Then the angel showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Again, there's that that election language. I have chosen my people and I've chosen this servant. So the Lord rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? In other words, I have rescued him. I have set my affection on him. I have, I have begun my purpose in him and you can't do anything to overturn it. And as the vision continues, we're given a picture of our justification in Christ. For Zechariah says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And so they took off his filthy clothes. And they put clean clothes on him. This is a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has taken off our filthy clothes, our rags of unrighteousness. These these filthy clothes represent who we are in our sinful nature. We are stained with sin. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We are deserving of condemnation. But through faith in Christ... God has clothed us with his garments and the robe of his perfect righteousness. As Paul said back in Romans 3, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. On our own, in our own efforts, in our own striving for obedience, we are all wearing filthy clothes and cannot be declared holy and righteous in God's sight. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that God gives, has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So who will bring any charge against God's chosen people? Satan and all his hordes of demons may try, but there is no charge that they can bring that will stand, because it is God who justifies We who have been foreknown and predestined and called have been clothed with the the robes of the perfect righteousness of Christ. We have been declared not guilty in the supreme court of heaven by the almighty judge of the universe and his jurisdiction is universal and his bench is the highest of all tribunals. And so when Paul says it is God who justifies, this is the final verdict, the irrevocable answer, the last word that cannot be overturned. And we can say then in the defiant words of the prophet Isaiah, from whom Paul got the language for this, his words here in Romans 8. So prophet Isaiah said, he who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Bring bring my accuser out. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment, and the moths will eat them up. For those who are in Christ, our status before God is totally and irrevocably and eternally secure. We are irreversibly justified in Christ. The fourth question that assures us of our security is very closely tied to the third. It continues this courtroom scene. Paul says, well, who then is the one who condemns? 
if we have been irreversibly or irrevocably justified by the almighty judge of the universe, then there is, there is no one who can condemn us. We are irreversibly free from all condemnation. As Paul said at the beginning of this great letter, therefore, or this great chapter, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The profound spiritual truth attached to this fourth question is that we are free from condemnation because Jesus is interceding for us. So Paul says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. And here's the reason why. Because Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We saw a few verses earlier that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our weakness. Now Paul uses the same word to describe Jesus interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And what, what an amazing picture this is. I mean, if, you get, if we get this, this image of what Paul is saying in our heads, not, not only did Jesus die for our sins way back at Calvary on the cross, but he has been raised and exalted and now continues continually to intercede for us in the presence of the Father. The present tense of this uh, Greek verb suggests that not only will, the, will there be no condemnation in the future for believers at that final day of judgment, but that even now Christ is interceding for us, silencing all of the, the arguments of those who would seek to condemn us. John Stott said the intercession of Christ means that he continues to secure for his people the, the benefits of his death. So he died at Calvary, and now he continues to, to intercede to, to sort of apply the benefits of that, of that death to his people. And so we can boldly challenge the universe with all of its human and demonic opponents and say, well, who, who is the one who condemns? St you know, stand up, st come forward if there's anybody out there who will condemn. And the answer will always be the same. There is no one. Because our crucified and risen and exalted Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now in this moment continually interceding for us. And good luck getting through him. This intercessory work of Christ is tied, of course, to his identity as our great high priest. The writer of Hebrews said, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore he is able to save completely, to carry to completion completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because, as John said in his letter, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And he continues to intercede for us, securing the, the benefits of his blood on our behalf. You've probably heard this story before. In fact, I've probably shared it with you before, but it, it fits too well here not to share it again. So the story is told that, that uh, Martin Luther once had a dream. And, and in his dream, Satan was condemning him for his sin. And, and Luther said to him, uh, to Satan in his dream, he said, take up that slate that lies on the, on the, the nightstand and, and write down all of the sins with, with which you have now charged me. So just, just take some time, take up that slate, write them down. And Satan, the great accuser, was delighted, of course, to do so. 
So he took up a, a pencil and he began to write on that slate and he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and it was this seemingly this, this infinitely long slate. And he kept on writing this long list of all of Luther's sins. And when he was finished, Satan told Luther, man, what a, what a black and dark catalog of sins this is. And he said, you know, how these, how, how these sins stood against him and these, these sins condemn you. And what, what can you possibly do in, in, in light of all these charges, all these accusations, all these sins? How can you not be condemned by them? And Luther said, you're right. My sins are many. And if I stand on my own, I am most certainly condemned. But there's one more thing that you need to write. After that last sin that you've recorded on that long list of sins, I want you to write these words. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And Satan had nothing to say and could only slink away in defeat. Who is the one who condemns no one. There is no one. For Christ Jesus, who died and was raised to life, is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us. So as we ascend this Mount Everest of Romans 8, we, we find in these concluding verses, and we'll see even the climactic conclusion next week, but we find in these verses that the deepest possible assurance our salvation in Christ is utterly and completely and irrevocably secure. We find this assurance in Paul's rhetorical questions and the, the profound spiritual truths attached to them. So number one, who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. Number two, how can we know that God will graciously give us all things tied to our salvation? Because he's already given us his son. Number three, who will bring any effective charge against God's chosen people? No one, because God, the almighty judge of the universe, has already justified us. And then number four, who has the power to condemn us? Not a single one. Because our risen and exalted, crucified king, is interceding for us. John Stott said that Paul just sort of hurls these rhetorical questions into space in a spirit of bold defiance. And he challenges anybody and everybody in heaven or on earth or, in, or hell to deny the truth they contain. But there is no answer, he says, for nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And so we are right to sing. As we sang earlier this morning, the soul that on Jesus does lean for repose, God will not, he will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he will never, no never, no never forsake. If you are in Christ, then may you live in bold trust, and deep assurance that your salvation is secure, not by your own efforts, not by your own grip, but by God's grip on you, secured in the hand of our sovereign God. Let's bow together. Lord God, in this time of silent 
prayer and response, we come before your throne. And I pray, O Lord, that if we have not come to a faith in Jesus Christ, that you might work through this moment and this message to awaken us to the beauties of Jesus and to call us, draw us to yourself. If we have come to a true and saving faith in Christ but are doubting our salvation, I pray, O Lord, that you work within us by the power of your Holy Spirit a deep and abiding assurance that our salvation is secure in the hands of our Almighty God. O Lord, I pray that you'd hear our silent prayers and our responses and our gratitudes for what you have done as we bring them before your throne this morning. Oh, Lord, if we <clears throat> did in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We praise you, O oh Lord, for giving us your Son, that in him and in him alone, our salvation is secure. And so we can say that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Oh Lord, may we live in that triumph in a deep assurance that we are held eternally secured in the hands of our sovereign and almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.